Now, once again, it is my joy and honor to introduce to you a man who is responsible for a kind of resurrection in my own life, Dr. James Smith. Now, he didn't say, Alan, come forth. I understand, though, that he and his team sort of beat me up on the chest for a while until I did. So it's a joy to have him here uh, to continue his message to us on the medical aspects of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last time, Dr. Smith currently practices at Florida Heart and Vascular Associates in the field of complex coronary and peripheral intervention, clinical cardiology, and lipid management. Dr. Smith completed his pre-medical education in two years, finishing at Florida International University. He was in the eighth graduating class of the University of South Florida College of Medicine, where he was president of his class. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Wake Forest University Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he remained there for fellowship in cardiology and interventional cardiology under the tutelage of Dr. Michael Kutchner. He performed hundreds of angioplasty procedures before establishing his practices in Tampa. He needed to practice those hundreds of times to work on me. So I'm glad he did. And he's here today. Let's welcome him again, please, Dr. James Smith. Well, greetings from the United States and from Tampa. Uh, I understand uh, that this island here is a, a beautiful place. This is our first trip here. Shame on us for having not come before. I grew up in Miami. I attended a school there, a military high school, and we had some young folks from the, the islands here. I remember so vividly one young fellow, probably in sixth or seventh grade, had come all that distance and was living in a barracks uh, away from his family, hundreds of miles away. And I remember him uh, just being so upset and asking him, well, what's the matter? And he says, I don't like this island, referring to the United States. Well, we like this island. We, we love the, the spirit here. We love the, the weather, the beauty. Uh, the hand of God has been strong in the Bahamas. It's also a great joy to be here with, with Pastor Lee. We came to be friends in a very haphazard, unexpected fashion. On a Friday night, I was just on call covering for my partner who had admitted him. And a very dear nurse called me up and explained his situation, and he was anxious to get out of the hospital and get home. And we agreed then on that Friday night to uh, perform a diagnostic procedure just to see what was going on with his heart. And uh, one of the rare things that happens when the arteries are blocked up so badly is that just squirting the little bit of x-ray dye that we use to take pictures, it's not blood. It's a, um, an iodine-based contrast so that on an x-ray, it'll show up with a dark uh, form that uh, allows us to figure out where the blockages are. But because it is not blood, when that contrast goes through a very critically narrowed artery to a sick heart muscle, sometimes that heart muscle will generate a rhythm that's abnormal. In this case, that rhythm is fatal were it not for some electricity. There are only two options once the patient enters a thing called ventricular fibrillation, there's either defibrillation or going to be with God. Those are the two options. Now, this was a, a very terror-stricken time for me because normally what happens to us, and we, we expect this, you know, in cardiology we're somewhat brazen and we understand, we kind of look for the worst. Uh, I'll confess 
that sometimes the most complicated cases are the ones that draw us because that's where we can do the most good. And so when this happened, we just very routinely said, okay, go ahead and charge up the paddles. And we charged up the paddles and tried to deliver the electricity, and the machine would not work. So we charged it up again, and it wouldn't work. So we unplugged it and plugged it back in. It would not work. We began doing CPR on your beloved pastor. And the terror struck in my heart, what are we going to do? Without this electricity, he's gone. Now, I knew already that he was a believer. We had already established that. But I did not want him to go to glory on the basis of our procedure. I didn't want to have to dictate that into his medical record. So I was there continuing CPR, and the the technicians and assistants that are with me all were just ashen with this thought of, we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble. For a very long period of time, four minutes and 39 seconds is an eternity when CPR is being performed. And with every beat, what happens through your arms produces blood flow to the brain and the heart of that patient. And some wonderful group of people developed CPR and our, our current standards and those monsters that trained me at Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center made sure that I knew every bit of it, how far to press, how quickly, what to look for and what to do. And so we wound up having to go and get another machine and set it all up and put the paddles on. And I was very relieved to be able to say, hit him. Pastor Lee came back. Oh, it was indeed. Praise be to God. Pastor Lee came right back unplussed. We continued with the rest of our procedure and didn't tell him a thing until later. (laughs) Well, we found out in the course of all this that we both had attended the same seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. One of the great joys of my life has been not only to be in medicine and to have a wonderful beautiful, gracious uh, wife, and Kathleen, please wave to everyone if you would. And three children, three grown children who are walking with the Lord. But Dallas Seminary put an extension in our backyard in Tampa. So uh, for the first several years of attending seminary, we never went to Dallas. In fact, the first time I entered the city of Dallas, it was to graduate. Um, I've graduated from there twice and hoping to do so a third time if I can jump through the right hoops. What a joy to be able to meet with and to train under these men whose entire lives are the Scriptures. They spend their time in the Scriptures. Their off time is in the Scriptures. They write about the Scriptures. They make a living from the Scriptures. And it's so interesting because if you love the Bible, you love these guys. And your pastor is one of those men. We're going to be in John chapter 11. If you'd like to begin turning there. We're going to look at some things in the Gospel of John, and just like uh, Dallas Seminary trains us to do, I'm going to give you a good foundation so you'll know where we're going with this. Let's see if we have our slides up. Go to the next one, please, uh, and hit the, the uh, space bar, if you would. Uh, you've seen these pictures of Mary and Joseph with the wooden manger, and uh, in the United States, there are a lot of busy people. I know folks have terrible schedules, and they've got a lot of things going, and they talk funny like I do. But in America, a lot of Christians come to church on Christmas and Easter. And so at the end of the Easter service, sometimes our pastors will say, well, we'll see you at Christmas. <laughs> the whole reason for Christmas was Easter. Now, I've also corrected this here. You see in the very middle, there's a, uh, a, a stone manger. Not a lot of wood in Israel. When you get there, and you must go there, you'll notice that there's, uh, wood is a very precious commodity. 
And so the, the uh, kit that you go and you buy at the, the uh, store down the road that has the cross piece and the nuts and the bolts to make the manger and put the straw in there probably was far from the reality. In fact, this manger was something hewn out of stone. And into it, Mary, who's traveling uh, far from, from her uh, homeland, would have probably torn off the strips of her undergarment to make the wrappings to put around the baby. If you recall, the shepherds were told, look for a baby in wrapped up swaddling clothes. And so from his very birth, Jesus was placed in something halfway looking like a mummy in a rock spot in the wall. And so when the shepherds came, they saw this unusual sight and they knew that this was the one which the Lord had spoken to them through the angel about. So this is where we begin things. Christmas is the reason for Christmas is to get to Easter. Next slide, if you would, please. The Gospel of John is a, a fantastic gospel, of course. We have four gospels, four views of the same thing. And it's not just four renditions. It's not as though um, these four guys got it differently. In fact, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very, very similar in their stories, in the depth of the stories. Luke, the physician, uses more words than anyone else. In fact, Luke writes more in Luke and Acts than Paul writes. He uses a lot of big words. I don't know if his handwriting was legible, being a doctor or not, but I guess that maybe it was. Um, and what we have in, in the Gospel of John is a later view. John is the last Gospel to be written. This is the, the, the uh, Apostle John who laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Near the end of his life, I think John probably realized that there were several details not available in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We don't know for sure that he had all the copies of them at that point, if he had every bit of the documents, or if they were even done by this time. But what John gives to us is a very unique view. Things in John that don't appear anywhere else are things like the an encounter with Nicodemus. The uh, you must be born again is not in the other Gospels. The woman at the well is only in the Gospel of John. The, the man born blind, only in the Gospel of John. The upper room discourse. You know, the, the great uh, foot washing and the vine dresser and the, the high priestly prayer, all those things that happened the night before, those things we only have from the Gospel of John. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the other Gospels aren't good, they're fantastic. They are just giving us a different theme. Matthew portrays Jesus as the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel, as the result of, of the fulfillment of prophecy. Mark shows him as a fully obedient servant. Mark uses the word immediately many times, such that the Lord will tell him to do something, and immediately it follows. Luke gives us a much expanded rendition with much more detail, a lot more mention of Gentiles, a lot more mention of women in Luke than in the other Gospels, a lot more medical terms. But John gives us a thematic view. In fact, he gives us this introduction that you know so well about the logos, the word in the first chapter. And then the remainder of the book is really two segments. From 2 through the end of 11 is so-called the book of the signs. Seven signs occur that portray who this person is. John is making a thematic statement. It's not only what he saw. He saw so much more that the, the books, if they were to be written, could not contain all the details of his life. But these are major things that John saw that he wanted to portray in this particular style. In the second part of John's Gospel, what we might call the book of the sacrifice. With this, Jesus has already said in the first part, my hour has not yet come. 
His brothers say to him, go up to the feast, make a name for yourself. And he says, you don't understand. My hour has not yet come. Says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Repeatedly he says this. But once we get to chapter 12, after the raising of Lazarus, he says, my hour has come and now is for the Son of Man to be given. So the sacrifice is that second portion of it. Both portions demand a response. And we're going to read it together. I did promise Pastor Lee that I would be done before 4 o'clock this afternoon. We'll be all right. But if you would turn to chapter 11, we're going to see a little something about a resurrection. And then we're going to gain some insight about the resurrection. We've already been through some of the details of the crucifixion itself. A bloody, violent, demeaning, depersonalizing, abusive, shameful, horrible, deadly experience. Nothing like it. We're going to see something that's happened to this man, Lazarus. We're going to get a little clue from this about the death of Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, this is Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus about Lazarus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now notice, they've got an agenda. They're working on it. They're, they're taking some of that relationship and trying to perhaps manipulate or bring out a little bit more of a response from the Lord. He whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You know, it's fascinating. Jesus never hurried. May have had some Bahamian blood in him. <laughs> you know, it's not that Bahamians are late. They just have all of their meetings early. <laughs> Verse 7, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, just the Hebrew word for teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Now, here's our first response to the work of Jesus. We, we've, in fact, concluded the chapter before. It says that they'd seen this last sign that he performed, and many people believed in him, the man born blind. Folks saw that, and they realized this is something unusual. And we're kind of seeing through the disciples' eyes this journey of faith, of watching him do what he does, surprising things. They never get to the point where they say, watch this, he's going to do this. Every time they think they've got him figured out, He's beyond what they can figure out. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. And many times in the scriptures, this picture, this foreshadowing, of death is portrayed by sleep. When you look at a sleeping person, sometimes they look almost dead. They're not responsive. They're almost lifeless. They may be breathing shallowly and something's happening in the brain, but it's not evident on the outside. So sleep is a picture of death, but it's not the same thing. Although the metaphor is used for it, that's not what's happening here. Verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. 
Obviously, he was not. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. One of the rare few times when Jesus spells it out to the twelve. They were a little on the hard-headed side. They had a lot of preconceived ideas. In fact, they don't get it until after the resurrection. And Thomas has to get it explicitly. Lazarus is dead, the end of verse 14, 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Notice, he's after the response. He's not looking just to show off his capacity. Of course he's got this capacity. This is the one, uh, the gospel says, that without him nothing was made that was made, which means every bit of this universe, every soul, every person, every emotion, every creature that we have, every galaxy. And if you started running right now, at the speed of light, you could not run across our galaxy in a hundred million years. Wow. Near a star, if you ran for 4.3 years at the speed of light, and that's fast, you'd get to the next star. After 4.3 years at running that fast, you'd say, well, one down. A hundred million years to cross our galaxy. And ours is an average one. There's some big ones. There's some little ones. There's some out there. When we keep sending these Hubble uh, uh, scopes out there, keeps finding stuff, amazing stuff, and it keeps on going. The God who created every bit of that says this, I was glad that I was not there so that you might believe. But let us go to him. Now, Thomas only has this other vignette in the scriptures. It's the only other time that he speaks until the end of John when the issue of him putting his hand into his chest and his fingers into the nail prints comes up. But this he says, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, meaning twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. Now you have to read between the lines a little bit. And that's okay in the scriptures as long as you read it correctly. There's something implied here. This is not exactly the uh, Sunday picnic that you would, would think they were after. Thomas is saying, great, we were just down there. In fact, it's fascinating in the Gospels. If you track this geographically, the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more his life is in danger. The more he gets to attached to the religious people, the more they threaten to kill him. The farther away he gets, the more the response of faith. The more Gentile, the more outcast, the more leprous, the more uh, military people all respond to the gospel in the gospels. It's the religious people who think they've got it all down that are the ones that are in trouble. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the tomb four days. This is Lazarus, dead in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And when you go, you can stand up there on the mountain that is, or the mount that is Jerusalem, and look down into the valley called Kidron. It's where Gethsemane is. Uh, at one point, there was a brook, the brook Kidron, that ran through there. A series of earthquakes have happened, and the, the land that was more uh, lush, that had more water in the past, now has almost uh, uh, very little. Uh, Egypt once was a lush land and has almost no water now outside of the Nile. They irrigate with the Nile. The same thing here. There used to be a, a, a river, a brook at least, that came through this valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives to the east. Just up the other side, and you can walk this in half a day. You can walk up and see Bethany. Bethphage is right there as well. In fact, if you get up over Bethphage, you can see the two mountains where Jesus said, if you tell that mountain to be cast into the sea, and if you look there today, you see one of the mountains has been lopped off. 
it was taken away and made into the burial place of Herod. And it was said then that Rome could move mountains. And Jesus points at it and says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains, saying you can do much more than Rome could ever do. Well, he's in this place called Bethany. Bethany is just uh, near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Verse 19, And many of the Jews who had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. So Martha's interested in the personal presence of Jesus, but Mary stayed at home. What's she going to do? She's going to set things up. She's going to produce a dinner. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, These are some great approaches. These are some great words to say to the master, the one who had the power over death, who had already healed a man with paralysis, who had already raised the child who was sick unto death, who had already shown that he had power over blindness. And so they said, if you'd only gotten here in time, if you hadn't delayed, O God, O King of time and the universe, you could have saved Lazarus. If only he'd had a defibrillator. We could have not put Dr. Lee through all those minutes, those long minutes of ventricular fibrillation. Well, we, we see what's happening here. My brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Leading question. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And immediately she's going to wax theological. She's going to go back to her theological training and pull out her notebook, and she remembers with that, she says, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. We have this from Daniel. We know that this is going to happen to all the saints at some point. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he has a fantastic statement here. Makes a a very powerful, positive uh, indication that he is what life is all about and that he is the resurrection. And he wants her response. Do you believe this? As we read this, we have to respond. We're going to have a response to anything that we read here, whether it's doubt, whether it's uncertainty, or whether it's wholehearted faith. There's several things that happen in, in John thematically. We know that he's going to uh, portray several things that have to do with water. Um, the water that's turned into wine. Well, John the Baptist comes baptizing water. The water is turned into wine in chapter 2. The woman who is at the well, he mentions to her this living water. Uh, the man who's at the pool of Bethsaida and not yet healed is trying to get into the water. The legend was that an angel would stir the water and you could get healed by getting in there. He then mentions again in chapter 7 that the Holy Spirit is in fact this living water. When he heals the man born blind, he spits on the mud, on the ground and makes mud and puts that into his eyes to heal with. In the upper room discourse, he wraps the towel around himself and he washes their feet with water. In the other three Gospels, when we get to this point with Jesus on the cross, where he said the seven sayings on the cross, in the other Gospels we hear things like, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in John we get a different and a, a solo rendition. John alone has him say, I thirst. And the picture there is that this water of the Holy Spirit that brings life, this living water that gushes out of those who believe, has been removed from Jesus 
So that even he, though he's been given some myrrh and water, myrrh and wine mixed, he's still thirsty. That is to say, he's out of the spirit, been removed from him. Move forward, if you would, please, on, on those again. Uh, these are the seven signs uh, in the Gospels, and where he says that it is his hour has not yet come. Back to verse 26, 11, 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Another response being called out. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, second time, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. For many of us, we don't have any difficulty in believing that God is sovereign, that he's Lord of all, that he's able to do anything. But when it comes to our particular plan, when the pain continues, when the diagnosis of cancer is still present, when the prognosis is not particularly well, when our child is suffering, when a marriage is falling apart, when things look bleak and we've prayed and prayed and prayed and we've asked God and we know he's capable of doing it, but we don't see what he's doing, we ask this same question. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. If you had blessed me, I would have a good marriage or maybe still have a marriage. If you had taken care of my child, I would not have lost him in that fashion. Many of us do this. It's one of our responses to life. 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. The same things that Nathaniel and his brother said, come and see. We have seen him who is the king of Israel. Come and see. In the Old Testament, it's always come and see. After the resurrection, it's go and tell. But here they say here, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, I understand, maybe if you had a Bible memory program that you might have gotten extra points for memorizing this uh, very important verse. It's a very important verse. A lot of how we interpret the Bible hinges on this. I think when we read this, Jesus wept. I think that's what it means. We understand that literally. We don't have to interpret it. Tears came out of his eyes. Jesus wept. But why he wept is an important thing as well. Jesus was not some distant figure who had uh, an academic agenda to carry out here on earth. Jesus felt this. He felt their pain. Jesus wept, not just little bitty tears. Jesus wept feeling their loss of their brother. More importantly, feeling their lack of faith. What he wanted them to do was to see who he was, that he was in fact the resurrection. And so he shows them. So the Jews were saying, verse 36, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was born blind, chapter 9, have kept this man also from dying? Good question. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within a second time, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. As you probably know, most of the tombs are above ground. 
You can go to Bethphage today. There are above-ground tombs there from ancient days. And uh, they didn't dig down six feet under the way we do. That does tend to seal things. That's our, our particular practice. Uh, it's perhaps a little bit more hygienic, but it was a lot of work in these days. So they would get a place that they could seal off with a stone so that not only would not the animals get in there and bother the body and disrespect it, but also so that it would control the aroma. And we're going to see that part of it coming up here shortly. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Do you think the stench was going to be the problem? If he came back from the dead and he smelled bad, do you think anyone would notice? Verse 42. I'm sorry, 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe. Look at how he's conducting his ministry. He's doing this not just to show off, not just to demonstrate his power, but so that people will believe when he does what only he can do. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I'm sure you've heard it preached. It was a good thing he said Lazarus before he said come forth. Because all of the graves could have emptied that day. That's the level of his power. But in this he makes it very specific for just this one. And for us we have to think theologically. What's happening with Lazarus? He's not exactly in there with his dead ears listening intently lest the Lord should call out to him. So Jesus not only speaks this event into existence, but he empowers the dead ears of Lazarus to hear him. This is all Jesus' power. When Jesus speaks, it happens, and it never fails to happen. You know, there are people that believe that you can speak things into existence. Try it. Now, words are very powerful, and I submit to you that your usage of words is an important thing in your ministry. You've ever been chewed out by somebody. If your boss or somebody that you care about has said some ugly things to you, many times those words will rattle around in your soul, and sometimes it's hard to get them out. Be cautious with your words. By the same token, when you speak words of praise or good words to people, many times they'll stick in their craw. I, I remember people who said, I'm proud of you. I, I'm delighted with this. This is a blessing that you've done. Those words are important words. I've had patients, sometimes 20, 25 years later, recite back to me something I said to them, and I could recognize, yeah, that sounds like something I would say with no recall of it myself, but something that meant something positive to them. So we can't create with words. If we could, this would happen. Let me put it to you this way. If we can do that with words, I now pronounce it over. Sorry. If you thought you could make things happen with words... If they really do happen with words, then I just ended it, if it really works. Well, as you can see, logically, that doesn't work. We can speak the word of God, and it works. The Lord himself spoke the fiat, the decree of creation happened. And when God speaks, sometimes people listen. But what's, what's the Lord after here? He's after our response. He's not looking for us to take his power and go do stuff that we would like to see done. But when we do his work, his way it gets done, and he gains the glory. 
If I cause it to happen, I get the glory. If he causes it to happen, he gets the glory. Well, we're almost done here. I just wanted you to see some more of these responses here. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44. Lazarus responds. The dead, stinking body of this man responded. When he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwind him, or unbind him, both translations are, are very accurate, and let him go, let him free. We get the picture very clearly with this, that other people had to help Lazarus because of what had gone on with him, because of the way that he was placed into that tomb. They would take hundreds or, or you know, scores of uh, yards of linen and wrap it around the body multiple times with this. And then they would anoint it, they would goo it up, with aloe and myrrh and other spices. The gals came to the, the tomb on Sunday morning in order to put spices on it to diminish the stench, in order to slow down the decay process. So turn forward, if you would, please, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We've already seen the details of the crucifixion. We're going to gain from our understanding of Lazarus's raising more about the raising of Jesus. Uh, in John chapter 19, look at, if you would, at, at verse 38. Jesus has already been crucified. He's already been recognized as dead. The professional soldiers came to break the legs of those who are still breathing and those who are not breathing to pierce them through with the, the uh, spear. The spear went into Jesus' chest, as we established on Friday. Uh, he was clearly dead. On top of which, he's now going to be mummified for the second time in his life. As an infant, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and put into a stone portion of the wall by himself, where it would be, by the way that the shepherds saw it, something remarkable to see. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. And you can't really blame him for, for all this. Uh, at least he was a disciple. It, we get no clue here that there is no such thing as a halfway disciple. Now, yes, the response should be the maximum. The Lord is looking for the maximum response. But Joseph of Arimathea was in process, we might say. He was a secret one for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate surprisingly granted permission. So he came and took away his body. We wonder, why did Pilate do this? You know, Pilate's wife had something to say with all this. And he may have been scared in the response to it. And so he may have been softened by the details of sending off an innocent man to a very bloody, very vicious death. Nicodemus, verse 39, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing, notice, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Do you remember what the wise men from the east brought for Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold was for him to live off of. That was their, their offering. They wanted him to be sustained with that so that he would have money to eat and work and, and be alive, in essence. The incense was a, an item of worship, but the myrrh is only used for anointing the dead. It's an undertaker's product. They would get it from Egypt, and it was a valuable product and also something in their offering of worship to the Lord in his infancy. They gave him myrrh in anticipation that one day this brand new birth would in fact be a death that would warrant the application of myrrh. Myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds 
weight. Now, in the Greek, it says about 100 liters, close, close enough with that if you do the math. Uh, this is some gooey, sticky stuff that's going to be anointed on top of the linen wrappings. And we know that just like Lazarus, there's going to be a face cloth. Well, you know, if you have somebody and you wrap the equivalent of a cast around their face and put aloe and myrrh and sealing goo, even if he was still alive, he wouldn't have been able to breathe with that. And we're going to see something else happen very, very quickly here as the disciples look in, just like the shepherds did in the manger. They're going to come in here and look and see, and that seeing is going to produce believing. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. There is a place there, the garden tomb. In fact, it's owned by the British government. Uh, They hire pastors to preach the gospel. The British government pays their salaries. When you go, and notice I say when and not if, when you go, you'll go to the garden tomb. We had such a fantastic uh, episode there. And they'll tell you the particular story. There's no proof that this site was the site, but it's close enough to Calvary. It certainly fits the, the fact that a rich man would have owned this area and have donated it. There are two burial places, one finished and one as yet unfinished, as if to say normally what would happen would be a man and his wife would be placed in there. But because this rich man had donated this, they gave it to Jesus and therefore never touched the other one. It was never used by anyone else. It is, by the way, still empty. Verse 41 again. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, this is with the Passover coming, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, you heard some of the details from Matthew of the women who go and they, they speak with the angel. They see that the tomb is empty. But John's going to give us a different view of that. He's not negating what the other gospel writers said, but he's going to give us a different viewpoint. And we're going to see three words for seeing. And this is not a Greek lesson, but I want to show you the great value of the Greek language in amplifying the meaning. If there are any young folks that are considering uh, studying the scriptures, sink your teeth into this. This is some good stuff that you are only going to be able to see in the Greek. Uh, and that's, that's the great value of it. They say reading it in the Greek, and, and that's been my effort to try and read some every day in both the Greek and the Hebrew after the training that Dr. Lee and I had. Um, it's like playing the football game versus listening to it on a transistor radio. It's the same thing. The score is the same, but it just feels very different. Notice, chapter 20, verse 1, and we're going to look for responses. And on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So that's already done. Something's happened already. You know the story about the centurions, the, the guard placed by Herod, and the people that wanted stories to be spread about that they had stolen his body. That's not John's issue. That's already been solved. He doesn't even mention it in his gospel, the latest of the gospels. So this Mary Magdalene, this is the same gal that Jesus threw seven demons out of, the other gospels tell us. So she, Mary Magdalene, ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. If you've read through the gospel of John, you recognize this is the title that John used for himself. 
It's just like a, a writer today might say, well, the author says this or the uh, uh, inscriber does this. Rather than using his own name, rather than personalizing it, it's as if he puts it into the third person. This was the tradition of the day, and John does that. So there's Peter and now John, Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, she said to them, this is Mary, to those two, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now the other Mary stops and talks to the angel and, in fact, sees Jesus. But Mary Magdalene does not. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. John just has to mention that he won the race. The two were running together, and the other disciple, John, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. This is the truth. Did he have to put it in there? Well, he was interested in finding out, and we're going to see the two men have different responses. Verse 5, John and Peter have just come to the tomb, and they're just outside. I want you to portray this in your mind. Verse 5, and stooping and looking, this is from outside. This is the Greek word for glance. This is The word is actually blepo. Um, now, none of you ladies would ever need this, but in the United States, some of the gals, their, their eyelids start to sag a little bit, and they have a procedure called a blepharoplasty. They take the, the glancer, the, the blinker, and they tack it up so that they look 10 or 20 years younger. It's a great thing. None of you would ever need it, I'm sure. Um, this is just a glance. And so this one who's first, John, looks into the tomb without stepping in. We'll notice some difference in the characters as well. Stooping and looking in, he saw, blepo, the linen wrappings, the rollings of the linen, lying there, but he did not go in. Why? doesn't say. He's the author. He's not telling us. So Simon Peter also came a few steps behind, maybe a few minutes behind, we don't know, following him and entered the tomb. Well, that fits with what we know of Peter. He's kind of a both feet in type guy. He wants to know what's going on. John's looking. He pushes him out of the way or something and steps right in. Gulp. He entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. This is a different Greek word. This one is theoreo, or theomai is this particular uh, declension of it. So he's using his eyes to make a theory. He's seeing with a response. He's not just looking at the scene saying, hmm, empty tomb. He's seeing empty tomb and understanding. And what's he understanding it from? Look at what he looks at. He's looking at the linen wrappings. Now, our understanding of this has been influenced by the King James, and it's, it's a great translation. Uh, it has been updated by, uh, you, you recognize that I'm, I'm uh, teaching from the New American Standard today, um, many good renditions. The best, of course, is the original Greek. Learn that, study that, you won't go wrong. There are some beautiful translations, but not understanding the issue of this in 1611, the King James translators softened this particular way of describing the linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in. So he enters, verse 6 again, he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, remember the one on, on Lazarus, the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. The light goes on. The theory is there. I see these two things. He concluded from the way it looked, from his own eyes, there's only one thing that could account for this. There's no stealing the body. If they stole the body, they'd take the linen wrappings. 
They would not leave these linen wrappings without having to cut into them or to unwind them. But no one would take the time to rewind them and make it look like the head was there. There's only one way that these linen wrappings, the body and the head, would be separated. And that's if something miraculous happened. If he, under his own power, simply removed that. Lazarus needed help. Jesus did not. The stone was removed by others uh, for Lazarus. For Jesus, the stone was just plain gone. The angel must have moved it. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had come first to the tomb, John, the faster, then also entered. He's got to see what Peter's looking at. So he glances in there at first, blepo. Peter steps in, theoreo, and the wheels are turning. John steps in, and it's a different word. He also entered, and he saw. Greek word here is iden, from where we get the word idea. The light goes on, and John sees it. Can you imagine running with Peter, having been despondent since Friday? You saw Jesus put to death, unquestionably. If there had been any hope, they'd have still hung around him. John was charged with Jesus' mother's care. He was uh, practically a member of the family. I contend that Jesus was at the wedding of Cana marrying off his last sibling. And so the mother uh, uh, role of Mary was done with. She'd raised all of her children. She was then free to follow him on his ministry. And at this point, his last concern on the cross was somebody to take care of my mother. What a great son. What a great heart. And what a great responsibility he gives to John, his great friend. He saw him die. All day Friday from the death on, all day Saturday from the death on, the wheels must have turned and think, what are we going to do now? Are they going to come get us next? We should hide. I've got his mom to take care of, but he's not left much of a legacy. There's not a lot of money involved with this. All we really have is political and social trouble. And so he steps into this tomb and he sees something unusual. And Peter walks right by him and sees it. And the look on Peter's face must have been fantastic. We don't have it, but there was one. This event happened. We know this event happened. This is the record of it. These two guys and the other uh, and the eleven spent the rest of their lives testifying that this happened. It just has to be. It just has to be. Nobody says, "Oh no, no, that wasn't the case." Nobody's written anything and says, "No, no, there, there weren't five hundred people that saw him." Every document agrees to this. Even some of the uninvolved people. Uh, Josephus says, yeah, there was this man. He was the Messiah, and he was raised from the dead. And the church arose from this. We see the response. In his name, more good has been done than in anyone else's name in the world. Granted, there's been some evil done in the name of Jesus. My favorite bumper sticker says, oh, God, deliver me from your followers. And sometimes people that name the name of Jesus don't bear the name very well. But in his name, more good has been done than any other name in human history. Think of it. Verse 8 again. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he eyed in and believed. Why did he believe from what he saw? He could see that, in fact, the details... This mummified Jesus, the same baby in the mummy in the hewn-out stone of the wall in the, the manger. This one mummified and placed uh, under this uh, mound of goo and sealed away with a Roman guard there was now free. And he had mentioned raising from the dead, promised raising from the dead repeatedly. 
John hears the word of God from Jesus. And when the event happens, it mixes with faith. Now, John's out, not out there being religious. John didn't wake up this morning and say, oh, I think I'll be a religious guy from here forward. I think I'm going to be closer to God. I'm going to be better and I'm going to you know, act nicer to my family and maybe better in business or something like that. John didn't plan this. This happened to John. All John did was to take the word of God and see the work of God. When Jesus was here, all he ever did was to speak what the Father had told him. And all he ever did was to do the work that the Father had given to him. Despising the cross, he endured its shame, looking for the joy set before him. These are the responses. If you would, we see more and more in here, the the women that respond to him just have this fantastic thing. But at the end of this chapter, uh, we have the great story of Thomas. And we'll conclude with this. We know that Thomas is in this upper room that they're sequestered away. They're afraid of the Romans. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came the first time. So the other disciples were saying to him, they're testifying. They're beginning the work of the Great Commission before it's even given to him. We've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his chest, not side, but chest, I will not believe. Here's his response. He'd heard the word of God, but had not mixed it with the work of God. He had not seen it for himself. He had a valid doubt. Now, we don't want to get too tough on Thomas. The, the human history of Thomas is actually a very favorable one. His life after this event is a very admirable one. History has it that he went to India. There's still a lot of folks in India today named Thomas because of his legacy of faith. He there testified until his death. All 11 testify until their deaths. Very few people will go to their deaths for a legend or for a story or for, for a conspiracy. It just doesn't happen that way. People like this who go and it costs them and it hurts them and it bothers them and it inconveniences them do so because of the truth. Very few people would do that for a lie and no 11 people ever would do it having seen this, having been despondent, even to make up a story. When tough times came, they would have never continued. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. He's present this time. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, And for each of us, we really do need to portray the Lord as looking at us. In our doubts, when we think, Oh God, you gave somebody else a better life, a better deal, a better option, a better situation, better family, better wife, better money, better income, better body, better eyes. We're speaking the language of Thomas. He said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my chest. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, I want to put my fingers in there and really check this out. Notice, Thomas doesn't say that. He didn't have to. At this point, his encounter is not with nail prints or a hole in the chest where a spear had gone, almost certainly, to pierce through the heart. Whose heart was pierced? Thomas's. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? 
Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And that is you. We weren't there, but we know it's true. We know that there are only a couple of options. Jesus was either who he said he was, or the worst person of history, or, or maybe at best a complete lunatic. C.S. Lewis, and you might go to this slide. C.S. Lewis portrayed this in his apologetics. He said that, you know, we just can't hear of him as a, a moral teacher. A moral teacher does not claim to be the God of the universe and the judge of all and the one who is offended by every sin. A good moral teacher wouldn't do that. A good moral teacher would never offer those things, would never promise those things to people. That's not good and that's not moral. Lewis said that he's basically either mad, bad, or God. That he's either a lunatic, like somebody would call himself a poached egg. Why he chose that, I don't know. Or a liar from the pit of hell, the devil himself. Well, he is really Lord of all. Those are the only options. Thomas, sitting there, didn't need to stick his fingers in or his hand in. He had already been forced to that point where he had to either walk away and deny it all or believe wholeheartedly. Thomas's response is your response. This chapter ends with the description that so many things had happened that couldn't even be contained with this. Our response ought to be that of Thomas who says, My Lord and my God, my Master, you have the right to tell me what to do. And you are my God. You are the King of the whole universe. You are the source of it all. Verse 30 says, Therefore many other signs... In addition to these seven and then the sign of the, the uh, uh, resurrection, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you, that, uh, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why did John write his gospels? Right here. Why did he put these signs in there? Why did he give us this detail in addition to the other three gospels? was for this response for you, sitting in a sense right behind Thomas. Able, if you really wanted to, to go and look at the data. Hard, irrevocable data. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And notice this. And that believing, you may have life in his name. This is the promise. If you believe this, if you believe that Jesus raised on that Sunday morning, that he was as dead as dead can get, that his body was already starting to decompose, you realize that he raised. That is your only choice. You have to believe something completely unbelievable. In fact, you have to force yourself to believe something that is untrue or accept this. As a response, believing you have life through his name. He gives to you those living waters. Now, he ascended on high as a result of this and sent his spirit. And the whole book of Acts displays for us what he can do through his spirit to people who are yielded to him, to the actual witnesses. So we may not be the eyewitnesses that the eleven were, but we have the same story, the same truth, the same level of factual confirmation. As he said to Martha, Believest thou this? Do you? Do you believe this? It is worthy of your belief. In fact, you can't unbelieve it any more than you can't unbelieve in gravity. You just can't do it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't for a moment say, oh, I'm not going to believe for a while. I've got some, some wild plans coming up. I'm going to become an unbeliever for a week or two and then come back. Try it. You can't unbelieve. It won't work. Since you believe and you have life in his name, 
What does that life do? What these people did in their responses, they tell the story and they live the life. Pray with me if you would, please. Oh God, what a great day when we commemorate not only Christ our Passover, not only the one who made the atonement on Good Friday, but the one who came bursting forth, demonstrating his power over death forever. After which, the whole world has nothing to threaten him again with. Lord, we are his beneficiaries. Lord, we love you for what you did for us, for taking our sins in your own body on the tree so that we might have life eternal. And Lord, we know that it was a horrible thing. But in response, what a great day Sunday was to demonstrate your capacity to not only heal, to not only teach, not only to make things better, but to put death in its place. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Lord, on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, we honor what you did for us and your power and help us, Lord, to be not unbelieving, but to be believing. In your name we pray. Amen.